Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. I'm Jasmine Elmer, and this is Legit Classics. How this is going to work is I'm going to get someone that knows some stuff about things in their field. I'm going to take the things I know about the stuff in my field, bring this all together and give you something bigger than either of us can do on our own. Whether you're here for the lulls or the learns, buckle up. It's time to get legit. So today's guest is the wonderful um, writer Kate Young, who is a cookery writer, but is also, am I right, but cookery that is inspired by literature. That is exactly correct. That's exactly you, how I describe it. <laughs> brilliant. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Do you read the books and then go, hey, I'm going to copy yeah, that? Yeah, that is literally exactly what I do. So I read novels. I read a lot of novels. I have always read a lot of novels. And I am a very greedy person, I suppose. And so when I've read novels in the past, before I started doing this, uh, I just had a, quite an uncanny memory for the food in books and always wanted it. We mm-hmm. sort of grew up with an obsession of going, oh, I really think I like honey because of Winnie the Pooh. Like, I think <laughs> that's like my image of honey is not actually honey that exists. It's an enormous stoneware pot of honey with H-U-N-N-Y written on the side of it that I was like, that's the honey that I want. And so I think when I grew up and, you know, realized that I could make my own food, uh, I started sort of recreating stuff and and trying to develop recipes that mm, evoked a sense of the the novels that I was reading and I've been doing it for it's 10 years next year amazing since I I wrote my first recipe that's so cool because obviously your books you know that your award-winning books I I should add let's put that in don't cringe you've got your represent well done um you know but I think I think it's a great idea I mean we all read these books as children don't we and they kind of inspire us in different ways and for you clearly food is your passion so it inspires you in that particular way it really is do you take it literally what is written in the or do you play with it yeah I really play with it and I think I have sort of very early on I was trying to be very sort of adhering to exactly the description and making it exactly right but I think at heart I want the food to be good and so Mm -hmm. I want the recipe books not really to function as sort of a thing you drop into and say oh I'd have that for a themed party that sounds like a slightly interesting concept but I want it to feel like that's food I really want to eat that's food I wanted to eat when I read it in the book and it's food I want to eat now and so mostly it's food that is real first of all so I don't often do sort of recreations of things writers have developed I, I sort of take things that already exist in real life um and and so and I want them to be good and so you know there's that horrible crab salad a crab and avocado salad (laughs) that makes everybody ill in the bell jar and it gives everyone food poisoning it's a horrible chapter it's really awful because it's been sitting under lights all day and that I obviously don't want to make that horribly so I make it a version (laughs) of it that's really nice that you'd want to eat yeah, I'm trying now to think, as you were talking, I'm thinking, can I think of any like kind of messed up recipes that I remember from books? <laughs> Unfortunately, just, I don't know if this proves that I'm not very well read or just like there aren't that many examples of really 
gross foods that you just wouldn't recreate. I think it just proves how greedy I am that I'm always like, no, I'd want that anyway. It's fine. (laughs) And a little birdie told me that I think you've got a recipe for a bacon sandwich in one of your books. Is that right? Um, It's actually on my blog rather than the book. It's never made it into the book. Um, But yeah, like there's there's a bacon sandwich from The Secret Garden, actually. So there's a bunch of like nice books from childhood, but also most of my books ended up uh I've sort of started focusing much more on the novels that I'm reading now as well cool as well I love the sort that of nostalgia hit ones so you know I also heard that you're a teacher you were a teacher before you I was a, I a was yeah, like a long long time ago so I was I when I first moved to the UK which is now gosh like 13 and a bit years ago yeah. um I I came over and wanted to get into theatre I wanted to be a theatre producer but I had done a theatre and a teaching degree in Australia so I spent my first few months here being a biology and chemistry teacher in a school in North London oh my god yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> I, re- I was thinking oh she must have really enjoyed teaching food tech that would have been really cool and then you're like no no no, no my friend no, 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 I taught no. biology and chemistry yep. taught biology and chemistry and physics and obviously I I there's a little accent there so you're there is Australian. an accent there is an accent and, um, I want to ask you the question I ask all my guests is did, did you do anything over there in Australia that is like classical did you do Greeks or Romans or kind of you know European ancient European history so we did nothing at school uh-huh. uh so my history at school was very 20th century focused and then there was like a big chunk of the medieval like dark ages because it's fun people love the violence and the horror of it and a bit of torture and yeah yeah, all of that so we did a bit of that and we did a bit lots of 20th century lots of wars lots of what did Australia do in the war how did they get involved but at university uh I did a drama degree that was quite practical in its application so I did a really sort of tangible Uh, I learned about producing, I learned about doing festivals, I learned about directing, I learned about lighting, I learned about all sorts of things. So it very much wasn't a classical focus, but we did work with a couple of classical texts. So I, my, my sort of experience in classics is embarrassingly small. And and no, I no, always no, feel no embarrassment, Kate. Stop no, it. sure, okay, okay. No, but I always feel <laughs> it's not your fault if you weren't it's exposed. Not, to it. Yeah, that is true. But my biggest sort of um, uh, lack of sort of confidence about my own education is being in Britain and hearing people talk about classics. And I have a bunch of friends oh, really? who studied classics, and me going. I just feel like I know nothing apart from having read loads of like Madeline Miller novels of like modern adaptation of classics and, you know, all sorts of, I love literature. So I love reading. I love stories, but I still feel like I'm sort of finding out story by story as I go and see a play or read a book or, you know, find something else out and like piecing together characters and stories. No, sure, I hear you. And I, you know, I don't want to turn this into a therapy session for classic people. People have got like PTSD about classics. Sure. I didn't get to study classics at school either, right? I just rolled yeah. off the bat at 18 to uni and did it. Hopefully what I'm doing is going to help people get just a little bit more comfortable with it and play around with it a bit more. Totally. So you're going to help me do that today. So we're going to practice yeah, exactly. preach and help people today. Great, perfect, um, can't wait. Yeah, well, I've got a couple of questions to ask you. Yep. The first thing is, the thing that I think is so important today is this kind of vegetarianism, veganism, this kind of movement into those kind of ways of eating for you as a writer somebody that is working in this area 
you know, do yes. you, you have a mixture of vegetarian and maybe vegan um, recipes in your books? I really do. Is that something that is inspiring you a little bit more? Because in books, I guess you just got what you got, right? <laughs> yeah, I think books are books are an interesting thing to be inspired by because certainly my sort of incredibly anecdotal evidence of of me looking for stuff in books all the time is that meat is really prevalent when it mm-hmm. comes to talking about either meals where people are celebrating things or meals where people are being comforted. So there's something about like coming home and having a roast chicken in the oven that happens right. in lots of different books That's because that image is such a sort of reassuring, comforting image. Mm. And in amongst my friends, far, far more than two to 10% of people are now vegetarian or vegan or are leaning that way in terms of the food that they make on sort of a weekly basis. And maybe they'll eat one bit of meat a week or one, one meal where they, where they have meat a week. Mm. I grew up in a community that was incredibly meat centric. I don't want to do the whole stereotypical of the barbecues. No, but, but know, it is that, like thinking about the Barbie. Exactly. I grew up with a barbecue on my back deck at my mum's, a barbecue on the back deck at my dad's. We ate meat a lot. I am probably not ever going to be a, a complete vegan. It's just probably not a thing I'm ever going to do. And what I really am passionate about is us using the land that we have in a way that feels like it honors this country what sure. what our land can do what it can support and yeah. some some of that is meat you know farming in this country is a really important part of the landscape it's a really important part of the industry and yeah. so i'm passionate about making sure that we have good meat and access to good meat and for me as somebody who sort of earns a nice living i'm i'm not you know there's a lot of people in this country that earn far less than i do but i'm not particularly well off so i will commit to buying good meat once a week rather than eating meat every day and this is really interesting because you're getting at some of the tensions that we have today with that and they're yeah. quite similar to what we see in the ancient world into the classical world so you know to begin with we need to understand that this is you know a much more sustainable way of life you know there's no mass markets of things in the same way when it comes to meat specifically they don't have the technology to transport meat in across large distances or or to curate meat in a big way so you know they're they're living much more sustainably and because of that one meat is expensive and animals obviously have different uses that aren't just for us to eat and the diet is, you know, imagine this Mediterranean diet, but it's kind of very similar in lots of ways to, to how, it, how we see it today. They're yeah. eating things that are largely vegetarian. That side of it, I guess they don't have the same choices that we have today. And they certainly have a completely different relationship with sustainability and, and farming. But in a, yes. if, because of it, it's a practical thing, as opposed to this kind of tension with uh, climate and a concern about environment. But what I do want to talk about a bit is a kind of ethical side of it, because I think we'll see a lot of similarities there. The Greek philosophers kind of had views on this. Yeah. So Pythagoras, I've spoken about him before in one of my other podcast episodes, but he's like, he's kind of, you know, mathematician people. He's maths guy. Yeah. He's maths guy because you think, here he is. We're back. Oh, the triangle man. Triangle man. He is is triangle man, but he's also a philosopher. And he also has some great, he also has some completely like off the scale insane ideas sometimes we're going to talk about some of them today some of them are to do with food which is why you're liking very very much he'll become your new he'll become your new favorite and you will definitely go and read him after this i'm really excited about Um, this so he 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 was somebody that spoke about reincarnation so believed that perhaps the souls of animals 
could be the past souls of human beings. And that is why yeah. we ought not to eat meat. So was a vegetarian on ethical you know, terms. That's really interesting. And, you know, like Plato, um, Aristotle, some of these others, they, they don't take the same view um, about uh, about this. They don't say that we need to consider it ethically. They see that there is essentially a bit of a hierarchy. You know, human beings are at the top of this and animals come right. down the chain, plants below. So they, they say we don't really need to think about um, the souls of animals because they don't have souls and right, there is okay. a pecking order, you know. Kind so of- humans have souls, but below that, no. Exactly. And you can see that there's kind of all different things going on there. We've got different views already. There's another guy, Theophrastus, who says that, you know, killing animals um, for food is wasteful. So that's kind of a right. really modern... I think that's quite a modern way of thinking about something. That's because so that, interesting. That, that maybe is more of the basis of what we might consider today. A lot of people who are vegetarian, vegan... You know, that might be the cornerstone of their own thoughts. So something I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper with is Mm. you mentioned this idea in in literature that you've read and and inspiring your own recipes to be about comfort food. Because Mm. I agree that especially in the UK here, uh, you know, cold, dark nights, people often want this kind of, you know, meaty, this meal, don't they? This kind of hearty, meaty, often meal. And actually I was thinking about what is the equivalent of that? Because... You know, people would eat meat as part of these animal sacrifices for the gods. Yes. Um, and then they would share the meat uh, with people uh, there. So it became essentially a community experience. Yes. So I think meat was connected to that. Um, so I wonder, there's a sort of element of human nature in that, isn't there? The feeling of comfort food. Yeah, and, then and the experience and the of community, of, and that, and know. I think the feeling of it being an event as well, of mm. sort of bringing people together, and this sense that we've come together for a purpose. There is something happening, and the way in which we honour that and recognise that is by eating something that maybe we don't eat every day. And sure. I think that whatever your sort of version of comfort is, whatever your version of the thing that is a celebratory meal, that is something that signifies it, is to get together and eat something that you don't eat every day. There's something that feels special, something that feels important. And maybe mm. that is, um, you know, an animal that has been sacrificed. Maybe that is something else entirely. But yeah. in terms of comfort in books and and that communion and things, it's it basically is like either roast meat or like a stew or something that feels really hearty or it's like buttered toast. It's always buttered toast. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just laughing because as a, as a Brit, you said that and I was like, yeah, when yeah. I've had a bit of a down day, I'm going to go, I'm not going to put margarine on my toast. I'm going to put yes. butter and you guys yes. can just deal with it. Um, <laughs> no, I feel you totally on that, actually. I, I, yeah, it's not, I wouldn't have thought of that as a comfort yeah. movie. You're totally right. But then also you read books that are translated from Mandarin and the the comfort food is mm. congee. You know, it it is completely differential around the world. I think the takeaway from this for me is just that I want people to understand from this bit of the pod that, you know, ancient people considered these ideas as well. They yes. lived a much more sustainable way of life when it came to animals and when it came to their own eating. And I kind of think that, I mean, I don't know if I'm doing this all utopian because I love the classics, but I kind of really much prefer that way uh, of life where we, we live more sustainably. I, I just want to say one more thing about it before we move oh, sure. on, which is that that sustainability in 2022, we are speaking from a place of enormous privilege. Like we both live mm. in a place that connects us to of course. land and to farming and to all of those things. And I know that there are lots of people in this country who don't have access to that and for whom that is a much more difficult thing. And I think that we are 
again, I am not the classicist, so I don't know, but <laughs> we are facing our structure of life, our way in which we cook, our way at the time that we are afforded to cook, the fact that most of us you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of us don't have staff to help us cook. We don't have slave labor. We don't have any of that sort of stuff. Sure. It does make all of those things so much more difficult for us. I think food is such a sort of complex thing to have to manage that we, in theory, going for sustainability and wanting to be really aware of where each bit of our food is coming from is really important. But even as somebody who tries to do that, I struggle because of the supermarket supply chains, because of the way in which I buy my food, because of the way in which food is on offer. Um, and I think it's a really interesting thing to try and do better and then to, to notice the ways in which that is thwarted by a capitalist society that exists that we now live in. Thank you for doing that, because mine was just this kind of like, yeah, let's just go back to the ancient world. Bye. Bye, drop the mic. I'm done. And you were like, let, let, no, let's get into the nuance of this, which you were quite right to do. Thank you. Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, that's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. So I want to talk to you today about foods that are taboo. And I, again, Ooh, we're talking okay. in, in two kind of ways. So like, you know, I want to kind of set aside religious taboos because obviously there are reasons behind. Yeah, definitely. So what kind of foods are taboo today or things that you have come up with in text? And I'm going to give a little bit about what goes on in the ancient world. So I'll, I'll kick <laughs> us off while you have a think. Okay, Because I, I'll throw you in the... Oh, like, I was sort of thinking, you know, there are certain things today that we, like we wouldn't eat, for example, dogs in the UK. That's something yeah. that we, we would struggle with. There was the horse meat scale. Scandal. So horses is another sort mm-hmm. of type of meat we might not like. Um, I'm thinking of offal. I remember at school, I mean, I was, I mean, this is the 80s in East London. Um, I used to have problems with eating. I didn't like the food, but they used to make me eat liver. And I used to sit there yeah. and I would miss afternoon class. I have to sit there for ages while the evil, um, the dinner lady, she's like over yeah. me. She's like, eat your liver. And I just, <laughs> it was just horrendous. It was like something out of a dodgy roll doll thing. But Well, just on the complete flip side to that, when I did home economics in year 10, so I studied home ec all the way till the end of school. Mm-hmm. And when I did home ec in year 10, we had to make our dream sandwich and I brought liver in and made pate from scratch and then okay, had pate with like now. pickles and loads of vegetables. All right, well, you and loads of <laughs> but loads of the girls in my class kept coming over and being like, what are, are you, you making? Okay? Why are you this person? Why is this so horrible? <laughs> yeah, you and I would not have been friends, let's put it that no. way. Um, <laughs> so liver gives me PTSD and liver sure, makes you really yeah, happy. Yeah, and it makes you um, really happy. <laughs> but sure, I, think, I think in general... Uh, people today I mean I think you know if I look a few generations back offal yes. was used a lot in cooking yeah. so I guess I'm thinking of, of that sort of thing today uh, and kind of us looking at those with kind of your work yeah but um I want to talk about one in the ancient world that's really Come interesting on. and it's it's our man Pythagoras again told you he's got some Love stuff him. to say so glad we're back um <laughs> and it's all about beans Oh, so you can imagine that the vast majority of an ancient diet is made up of things like beans and pulses and grains and and vegetables. That's the large, you know, majority of what they're eating. But it's this beans thing. Pythagoras said, don't eat beans. 
And he said don't eat beans because he thinks they look like little human fetuses. Wow. Which is, yeah, I know. Yeah, you're, I mean, no one can see your face here, Kate, because I can see you. <laughs> no, sorry, yeah. The hands just went up to the cheeks and the mouth <laughs> just the mouth <laughs> oh, just dropped wow. open. But you know, there's this concept that maybe, like you know, this reincarnation thing that he's a bit obsessed with, that they are little human fetuses. But there is wow. also a wider connection to maybe beans being connected to kind of dead souls or bad dreams. I mean, so, you know, beans. I mean, he also said that when you eat beans, I mean, what's the thing that happens when you eat beans, Kate? Let's You can you say fart. it. You fart. So what he said is that when you do that, you're expelling like the breath of life. <laughs> so I think he thinks every time you fart, you little bit die. Too, yeah. I just think he's thought too much about beans, honestly. <laughs> I think he's just... He, oh, I mean, he's he is, this is classic overthinking. I'm just thinking when you crack open your can of Heinz or any other brand, yeah. beans. That's really strange. But there is a bit of a theory, actually. A friend of mine who works on this, who's uh, who's great, uh, Dr. Mike Beer, he'll be, ha- he'll be happy that I've dropped him a little thing there. He has a book called <laughs> Taste and taboo and one of his theories about this is quite interesting because about i've done a bit of research it looks like about four percent of the world's population have something called i think we pronounce it favism which is yeah. a type of allergic reaction to allergic beans. reaction to beans right yeah. so you know and it can be deadly so i'm wondering although this is completely off the off the scale insane like conjecture the, just insane absolutely yeah. i don't know what's going on sure maybe yeah. he sat there one day someone ate a bean had this favism drop dead maybe that's where it comes from but i love this this sort of (laughs) oddity about beans i've become a bit obsessed with it since i i first found this piece of information so and then one of my favorites is um and i still actually i think this has become part of my my psyche today because i've known this for so long the greeks had an issue with drinking milk they saw mi- okay. drinking milk as a barbaric practice. It's something that barbarians oh, did. Wow. It's, they would use milk to make cheese and things like that, but they wouldn't drink milk. Now, I've got a friend who drinks just cups of milk, and I just sure. I just can't help but think, think of that the barbaric. whole time. <laughs> well, no, I don't, I don't, but something in me, I don't know what's happening to my like kind of personality. I've been doing classics for so long, 22 years, I'm just like morphing into like a Roman or Greek. But I was just watching, and I was just like, no, friend, don't you can't do this. I want to smack it out of his hand. So anyway, so milk um, is another drinking I, milk. I think that's the drinking milk thing. I think I've got a lot of friends who feel weird about that. Oh yeah. I really like milk. Okay. I think it's great. Um but I I think there is a weird thing about adults drinking glasses of milk. I think people have a weirdness about it. I don't have a weirdness about it, but I have observed many weirdnesses <laughs> in other people. I think that there is something about milk that feels like innately childish mm. and that if you are ordering milk it's like a really weird thing. There's an there's somebody who walks into a bar and orders a glass of milk. That's weird. That's a weird vibe. I mean, I'll be honest, I wouldn't think that person was particularly sophisticated. Is no. that is that is that, no. is that similar to being barbaric but, in some way? Barbaric no, I mean, I, barbaric I is a word that's, you know, kind of, you know, it's a Greek word and it's like bar, 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 bar. That's what they thought barbarians sounded like. The other, right, essentially okay. the other, you know, the non-Greek really. So there's okay. non, this non-Greek. I didn't so know that. That's milk is a bit, Yeah. So we have it in the Odyssey. So famously the Cyclops, you know, Polyphemus yes. in the Odyssey, 
uh, drinks milk, which to a Greek audience... Because I've read Circe, so yeah, you, I yeah, now you're know. like, I got this. I got Circe. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah I know that, this. I've got... Th- that's yeah, yeah. a bit of my connection that fair, is that's my favorite. that's one of my favourite books. So it's, it's so it's, good. It's so, so good. If you <laughs> so haven't read it, get on it. Get on it. It's brilliant. Um, and it's super accessible and beautifully yeah, written. Yeah, super oh, accessible. Beautiful, beautiful. And then read Song of Achilles, which is also yeah, just stunning Song and amazing. Achilles, that's really good as well. Anyway, we do this. This is me. Sorry, yes. Okay, we can just... We're going to do this all the time, aren't we? Everyone's going to be like, what's the thread? What's the thread? Right, back to the thread. I've forgotten the thread. Where was the thread? The thread is the barbarian. So I think that milk, ordering milk at a bar is a different vibe even to like, I think I would find it stranger for somebody to order milk than to like order a like a juice box even. Yeah, like I think that ordering a glass of milk is a weird vibe. That is It's a weird vibe. There is something like not grown up about it. (laughs) Yeah, not, yeah, I'm just trying to think about it. It feels like, the only thing the only time when I think it's acceptable is when you're trying to build bones as a child <laughs> I think it's weird as soon as you've built your bones no I hear what you're saying I mean obviously I, it's much more extreme in the Greek world like I was saying sure, no, like yeah, it's, yeah, it's exactly. polyphemus I'm not saying yes. someone please don't get upset someone who's, no, who's no, a milk no, no, drinker absolutely not someone who's absolutely a milk not. drinker is going to be listening to this going did she just say yeah. I'm like polyphemus um, actually no you're not like no, polyphemus no, no. I'm saying you're not like that but it's interesting that the Greeks sort of freak out about people drinking milk. Yes. Because it, it is this, I think they see it as an uncultured thing to do, an uncivilized yes. thing to do. And that's what you see in text as well. So, you know, like we don't have that today. I'm not saying that's how we feel about no. it today, but it's interesting that there's still this sort of, you're right, that it's sort of cringing me out more than, like you say, yeah. if someone <laughs> ordered a juice box or something else that you consider, yeah. like Ribena. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, if somebody walked into a bar and ordered a Ribena, I'd be like, you know, fair play. Maybe, I thought maybe they're like a bit retro, a bit cool. Yeah, exactly. Know, a bit retro, a like, bit cool. Nobody thinks you're retro and cool for ordering a glass of milk. Milk, you'd be like, yeah, okay, huh? <laughs> I thought the beans was going to be the thing. It's the milk. It's the milk. It's the milk. If you're writing a cookbook, okay, and I'm, yes. like, I'm guessing you're hoping it's going to sell. Sure, theoretically. So you're not going to fill it with like sheep's brains and goat's testicles and stuff. Do those recipes exist, first of all? Have you seen those sorts of recipes in, 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 in the kind of literary works? And then what do you do with it? So they are less sort of common, as you say, now. I think there was a big movement um, in the early half of the 20th century and post-war as well, where the accessibility of meat and the wanting to use every part of meat is, is a big deal. And people want to, to make sure that they are really taking advantage of everything that is there, particularly during scarcity. So particularly during times like rationing and all of those things, you know, if you've got scarcity, you want to take advantage of what is there. But I think there is something about the era in the late 20th century where people were like, I don't have to eat the offal. I can eat Mm. the bit of meat that's the sort of fancier cut. I don't have to do the extras and the entrails and all of that stuff. I can do this bit of the meat because now we've got money. You know, sort Mm. of capitalist era in the late 20th century, we've got money, we can spend it on meat. But in the 90s, there was there's been a real movement and it's it still continues now of of trying to move back towards going, hey, if we're gonna kill animals. And that is what we are accepting that we're doing to eat meat. We should be using every possible part of them. And so there's an amazing, really influential cookbook called Nose to Tail Eating, which was written um, by the Fergus Henderson, who started St. John, um, which is a, a chain of a couple of restaurants in London that I adore. And it is about using a, a whole animal and, and recipes that use cuts that are less common 
And there are lots of butchers around the UK and lots of sort of uh, butchers in different communities who will be able to get all sorts of different cuts for you and all sorts of different offal for you. And yeah. certainly there are a lot of communities that have bases in the UK, lots of diaspora communities where there are far more offal uh, sort of based dishes. But um, I think as well, that's the interesting thing about a food taboo because so many of the taboos I can think about, so foods that people would call slimy or strange or things that people don't want to eat, is often so rooted in a lack of familiarity and a feeling of otherness. That sort of well, bar, bar, bar it, thing exa- again, like yeah. it's the barbarian. And I think actually, you know, we, we're touching upon a point that I want to move to for our last sort of, you know, Ooh, yeah. big question, which is... I want to talk about, I mean, Romans are face, famous for their banquets. So these are obviously the Roman elite. Yes. But I want to talk about the two ends of this scale, which okay. is the idea of the banquet, which I would like to talk to you about specifically. But the other end of it is what poorer people do. You know, banquets are the lavishness of the rich. You know, it's what yes. rich people do. And then poorer people in the ancient, I'm thinking specifically here of Rome. So much of my example here is Rome. They had lots of, there's takeaways, you know, because... It, it practically it makes sense. Poorer people uh, obviously don't have the equipment in their homes to cook food very easily. Okay, yeah. Now there are things like I don't want to call them tower blocks. It sounds a bit extreme. They're called insulae. They they are though very much like flats, blocks of flats okay. that you would have in, in sort cities. of housing structure. Roman that works six, absolutely, yeah, that, vertically you know, rather top, than horizontally. Correct, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, and that's obviously they usually be you know for poorer people. It might even be that you know that. As you go further up, it might have been made more of wood and things like that and lower down sure. stone. Okay. So, you know, there might be a hierarchy within it as well. But, you know, these people often are the poorer people in Roman society. They don't have access to, you know, well, I obviously don't have microwaves and stuff like that, but they don't have <laughs> they don't have an oven in their home or things like that. So, sure, yeah. you know, it became a bit of a custom in these urban centres for takeaway places to open up, you know, Tabernas, it's not only that they have the equipment, but it's also that the, the poorer people are working so hard that they need that takeaway-esque fast food thing going on. Yeah, It could have been, you know, kind of breads. It could have been, you right. know, that sort of like you want that kind of carby, heavy food that's going to keep you going for a long time that's cheap to produce. Yes. But what I want to talk to you about, Kate, is the kind of, the, the experience of dining, you know, kind of the ex- not just the food you're eating, but the yes. experience, the environment that you're in and the I guess the feelings associated with it. So the most famous example, like for me, the chef that makes me feel most close to Rome yeah. is Heston Blumenthal. Sure. Because yeah. he's it's all about the theatrical, right? Exactly. Yes. So d- can you think of examples from kind of, you know, again, literary works or anything, you know, your views on how important is this sort of theatrical experience to dining, um, either in your own home on, on a smaller scale or going out to sure. some kind of restaurant or experience? Like how important do you think that is to the way our relationship with food and what we eat? There's so much going there. There's so much I want to talk about. Um, so <laughs> there is an innate theatricality to putting people around a table and having them talk and have a meal. Mm. In a novel, it it serves a really specific function because it's it's one of those points in the book where you're bringing everybody together and you're letting them tell a story together. And so it becomes this event. And it might be the only point in the book at which every one of those characters finds their way around a table together. So much of of novel writing is, you know, happens in conversations between people or in thoughts in somebody's head or in, you know, there's infinite different ways in which you can write stories. 
but there is something about bringing people together around a table that means that they're sort of a stuck and have to be there for the meal and b that they everything that they want to raise can sort of come up and come out and that's why you end up with these theatrical scenes of sort of people kicking off or people you know p- big celebrations or whatever it is a lot of my sort of favorite scenes to read are scenes that happen in big houses where the whole family is together. So something like Elizabeth Jane Howard's The Light Years, where the whole first section of the book is sort of visiting in on loads of the different characters as they are returning to the sort of family home. And you know that there's going to be this meal because inevitably they're all going for Sunday lunch. But you see everybody individually, you see all these characters reassemble and then you see them, 13 of them sitting down around the table and you see the staff who are preparing the meal downstairs and you see it all coming upstairs. And and suddenly all of those conversations are happening and all of those people are reconnecting and people who normally only talk over the phone or via letter and haven't seen each other in a little while. It's like the point at which everybody can air all of their thoughts and feelings. So do you, do you feel then from what you're saying that often the theatrics come from the conversations between the guests as opposed to the 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 context the environment the setting of the meal so because I'm thinking when when we go in a minute and we talk about some Roman examples much of it is about the theatrical element of the food itself or the entertainment that is provided it's not it's not always just a conversation between a guest no you're totally right so is there elements of that that happen as well do you think yeah and there's the extraordinary big feast in the master of margarita there's like there are loads of you know the whole mask of the red death is like a party where everyone comes together and and the theatrics of that um form the sort of basis of the whole book there are there are loads of stories where the performance is you know the meal becomes a big deal the thing that happens becomes a sort of drama and theatre and where that is the space not just the characters coming together you're you're absolutely right there's loads of them through the sort of 19th 20th century literature where those meals are big and theatrical you know Gatsby's parties oh yeah, are yeah huge yeah. and oh, theatrical I really, I really and want like, to go to one of them <laughs> right and the like the platters that are laid yeah. out all of the food that's at those parties mm. feels opulence. sort of extraordinary and opulence and there mm. are when you read about those parties um, Nick when he arrives says that the first supper is being served but there'll be another supper later so it's not even (laughs) that you know that everybody just comes and drinks which is obviously what everybody remembers about those parties but if you like close read it with an eye on the food as well you get a sense of just how much food there is just how much stuff is coming out and being provided for everybody yeah, and I I wonder if it had, this has its roots in the Roman world because although the Greeks had part, they had more like drinking parties they're called symposia which is a male only kind of drinking more of a it's more there is food but it's more of a drinking thing right, so I'm okay. gonna that's why I'm going to the Romans because to be honest they're the Mac Daddies of this they just went sure. they just fully went for it so yeah you know for Romans these are, I'm talking again about Roman elites what's kind of really interesting is when you look at these elites and obviously this is a lot we have a lot of this in text you know a lot of this in literary or historical text because it's fascinating yeah. and it's like the lives of the rich and famous it's like hello magazine or whatever or in, <laughs> or pictures or Instagram of your food that type of thing people kind yeah. of like it's lavish but it's full on massively over the top so I want to talk about one really good example of this which yeah. is the Roman emperor Elegabalus. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. No, I don't know why. Really, he was a teenage uh, emperor, so his dates are 218 to 222 yep. AD. So it's kind of a bit later okay. in the Roman period. He actually gets assassinated in 222 at age 18. So, you know, he's only 
14 Poor to lad. 18 in his time. Well, poor lad, all right. We haven't got no, a long not, time not for his lesson. Lad. Sorry, okay, Le- no, yeah, no, yeah. no, you can say poor lad. You can say poor lad and you can have the sympathy because he's only a young guy. But let me tell you some stuff he did and then you tell me if you still feel like he, you feel like yeah, he's... Yeah, no, okay. So he would, you know, it's very normal in Roman society for them to throw these lavish feasts. And it's so much more than the experience of being with friends, enjoyment. It is a um, a message to society about your level of importance in society. So you have okay. you the, the you outdo everyone. It's like oh, last week Kate had uh, three peacocks. I'm going to have five peacocks because I'm better than Kate. <laughs> and then yes. everyone be like, oh, Jasmine's better than Kate because she did five peacocks or some or put. They have this thing about putting a bird within a bird within a bird or things like that. Oh, oh it's a duck. Yeah. you knew the word. Yeah, of course you did. Yeah. I don't know the bloody word. You did. My mum's made right. one. I never okay. had. Well, well done, mum. I, I mean, I, I, would, I don't even want to think about that. But, no. you know, like that thing. Uh, so it's flash flash sort of stuff. But what he did, you know, he would throw these these parties um, and he would do things like he made his guests eat live parrots. But yeah. eating them live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, he served his guests fake food made of wax and stone while he ate the real food. This is right? awful. Yeah, he, well, it gets worse, mate. It gets worse. Good, good. Okay, I go. often say buckle up. This is definitely okay. time to buckle up. He served eels fattened on Christian slaves, which at the time was a thing. You know, he came to one dinner party uh, driven in a chariot pulled by naked women, as you do. Um, cool, yeah. And he used to mix kind of golden pearls with peas um, and rice. Um, and eat golden pearls and the pièce de résistance I mean I don't know what you're supposed to do right because he like he he was obviously you're getting the idea he's a megalomaniac you're getting the idea right so it's not like this is not normal also I think if you give anybody this sort of power at 14 (laughs) maybe they are gonna like get some gold and some pearls and throw it all together with these exactly exactly in fact you know like and my favourite pièce de résistance you think just this dinner party can't get any more crazy but he would sometimes drug his dinner guests and cool, then they would yeah. wake up in a room with live lions and leopards. <laughs> what? Oh, the hands what? have gone back up to the face, everyone. What? Look, I, I wouldn't be a proper classicist if I didn't say, okay, these this, these facts are so, like, oh, they're so tasty, aren't they? <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah, they're delicious, yeah. But, but the, I don't know, is it all true? I mean, let's see. We do know that Romans went for these extremely lavish parties with all sorts yes. of, like, you know, they would mix... To me, this theatrical and, and, and kind of lavish element into it, using jewels and gold and other things like that. Elegabalus did so badly that he, he, nearly, he nearly bankrupted Rome doing all this, which won't, won't shock you to know. And we have that story for Petronius, a Roman writer. I don't know if you've come across this stuff, but you need no. to because it's literary. Um, okay. He writes something called uh, Trimalchio's Dinner. Um, okay, which is about it, yeah you write down. it down I say such a teacher you making notes now Kate please <laughs> making notes making, making notes, notes. Um, visual Jamal- learner come Jamal- on if you hear rustling in the background it's because Kate's genuinely it's gone, gone to go and she's now. actually <laughs> taking notes um Trimalchio's dinner, Trimalchio's feast, which is about an ex-slave called Trimalchio in, in Rome and him hosting a dinner party okay. and trying to prove himself essentially as an ex-slave who something you can do in Rome is become a freed man. So you, right. you, you can make your riches. It's not very common, but you can do it. You can make, make a lot of riches doing that. So he's having this dinner party, trying to prove himself and there's all sorts of dodginess going on left, right and centre, conversations being had, entertainment, types of food. So that's a good one for you to read. But I'd love you to try and do a cookbook on that because it's all this sort of you know roman cuisine so dormice and ostrich oh this that and the other and you know the more exotic and strange the food the better uh, that's yes. why i say about heston blumenthal right at the beginning because yes. i just feel like that man 
got a little bit of Roman DNA in there somewhere because I think he channels some of that. He wants to mess yes. with our... Essentially, it's, it's a fantasy. I feel like if you went into one of these Roman parties, you step into the realm of fantasy. It's not reality, yeah. which I think is probably but, why people enjoyed them or didn't if you were uh, yes. Megabalus's. Or, and there are other emperors that did similar things, but he's my favourite, so let's not talk about it. <laughs> but I also <laughs> talked about exactly the wrong type of theatre at the beginning, and so I just want to do one more. Sure, no, do one more. <laughs> one more modern one. No, you uh, talked about any type of theatre. I, I just got distracted by my like concept of I read a lot of domestic novels and want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but have you seen Babette's Feast? Have you watched it, the film? I haven't even heard of that. Okay, um, cool. But clearly I don't... I mean, please tell me about this, this so, feast. Babette's, Babette's feast. Babette's feast. Babette's feast. So Babette's feast is a novella uh, by... And it was, it was written in the 20th century, second half, and it's a little novella, and the novella is just one feast. Oh, yeah. So the story is there's a woman called Babette who is a French chef, and she escapes France as a refugee. Right. into northern Europe so into in the film I think she's in Denmark and in the book it's Norway or it's the other way around and she moves in with a group of sort of puritanical sisters who are incredibly pious and incredibly sort of simple in their things that they eat so it's a tiny little novella it's a short story it is just this meal so they essentially she gets to this this sisters she spends time with them for years and sort of works with them lives with them spends all of this time with them and then she wins the french lottery and she wins ten thousand francs which is enough money really for her to go and rebuild her life somewhere or do something else or move away from this town or do whatever it is she wants to do but instead she spends all of the money recreating this extraordinary extravagant meal that she once cooked in paris for this group of sisters and for their other the other people in this community and for one traveller who is coming through who has once eaten at her restaurant in Paris and realises halfway through the meal who she must be because of the food. <laughs> and the whole book is just her making this dinner. My head was shaking, but my mouth was open because I'm thinking, really? That amount of money on one meal? All the stuff she yeah. could have done with it? One meal. And they don't find out until the end. And there's the reaction of these sisters is kind of, you could have done anything with that. And she goes all I wanted to do was cook for you and all she's ever wanted to do is cook for people and, and make them happy. I mean, you know, Spit I wouldn't do it. No. But the meal's amazing. I'm wondering also, what's going on in Babette's them. head a little bit yeah. there. I mean... She doesn't eat with them when I was She doesn't 30. even eat it. She doesn't even no, eat it. No, she's in the kitchen. What the chuff's that about? No, she... Yeah. No. Come on now. <laughs> when I was 30, I did like a poor man's version of Babette's Feast okay. for my 30th birthday. Did you birthday. eat it? Yeah, 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 Normal. because I'm not an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's been so fun talking to you. I mean, we've talked so much about so many different topics, but the way that I, because you, you, teacher to, you know, ex-teacher to ex-teacher. Sure, sure, come on. Uh, you know, we have to have a plenary. You have to have a little bit of a way to bring it all together oh at gosh. the end, right? You're going to test me. Yeah, uh, it's a written, <laughs> there's a written exam. No, there's a written me. exam, um, yeah. No, what I do is I play a little game. It's called Legitimates. Um, okay. Because it's legit classic. Legit classic. And I want to see if sort of cookery in today and cookery back then can be mates. It's a little pun. You can think on it. Yeah, it, it I sort like of it. works. And what you do is you get 60 seconds and I do my little sure. timer. 
And all you've got to do is just free flow anything you can remember from the conversations, any intellectual takeaways from today. Yes. Uh, yeah. Just little facts that you learned that you found interesting and you try and sum it all up in like 60 seconds. Um, are you game for that? Can you do it? Yes. You can do it, I'm sure. Right, so I'm going to start the timer and I'll give you a little count in. Three, two, <laughs> one, go. Okay, so I learned about my pal Pythagoras, who, as somebody who really enjoyed maths at school, I didn't realise he was also great philosophy guy on reincarnation, on animals, on why we should eat them or not, and the weirdness of beans. And him being a weirdo about out my friend, the bean. I'm a big fan of a bean and I don't understand why he hates them. Um, I learned about vertical housing, not horizontal housing in ancient Rome and about communities that didn't have their own cooking facilities and therefore took a lot of takeaways. And that's particularly sort of working class communities or lower class communities. Um, I learned about the guy whose name I've forgotten because I'm very, very bad with names, but the terrible 14 to 18 year old emperor who, who acted Alagabalus, who acted exactly as I think all 14 to 18 year olds would act in that situation and was just a total loser who made everyone terrified. Time up! Do you know what? That was good. Because what I like is just all that chat about Alagabalus being a total loser. (laughs) Total loser! I feel like I might get some people at the bottom, like these kind of, you know, these academics that work on Alagabalus going, I think think you're a bit unfair there. I think you'll find actually. I mean, we we have taken it, yeah. Oh, you did so well there. I mean, it's so so great to see how many different things that we've learned together. It's great. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on. I hope you like classics a bit more now and feel a bit less freaked out about it because it is just people that lived a long time ago. Same as us. Yes. Uh, Kate, so if you've loved all this chat, I've heard you've got a new book coming out. Is this true? Is this a true rumour? It is a true rumour. It's actually, it's called The Little Library Parties and it's all about parties and literature. <gasps> so there's loads of sort of feasts and exciting things and great food to make when you're having friends round. Yeah, little little caveat though, don't copy the Romans. Yeah, no, don't copy the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been Legit Classics with Kate Young and Jasmine Elmer. Acast.com.